So this is Fam Electric Ghost, and we're live on the air for the first time with Karina Gardner, CEO of Design Suite and a fabric and craft designer. Welcome to the Fam Electric Ghost podcast. How are you doing tonight? So good. Thanks so much for having me. So I uh, want to let people know a couple of things. Like if you can see up there, uh, there's an icon that says listen on Newsly. We are a featured podcast on the Newsly platform. And for all of the people watching or listening, if you use coupon code GHOST, you can check that out for 30 days for free. We'll be on Newsly later today, so you can check that out. No cost to you if you use the coupon code GHOST. And then we'll also, we've got your link up. We've got a couple of links. So we have the first one is designsweetcourses.com forward slash free. And then we've got this other one that we have, uh, Karina Gardner shop, uh, dot my Spotify.com, Shopify.com. Yeah. So we can we can alternate between those during the show. Yeah. Um, so um, and then other than that, we want to talk about the focus is um like from from hobby to profitable creative business. That's kind of like the focus of the story, and then we'll get into it. But again, thank you for being on the show. I'm so excited to be here. So one of the first things we always ask guests this is a new thing we've been doing lately is um. Like, what motivates you and why do you do what you do? Well, um, I am currently the CEO of Design Suite, but three years ago, I was just a designer and I was a multiple six-figure designer. There's a few of us out there that make a lot of money as designers. And I kept getting hounded because people were like, I, we don't understand how you're making so much money as a designer. So I started a program to teach people the way to make money. And just as a, as a background, I actually have a doctorate in design. So I taught at the University of Minnesota. I taught at the Arts Institute. I ta taught graphic design. My specialty was typography and packaging design. Um, that's mostly what I taught at those schools. And so I have a little bit, bit of an academic background already, but that wasn't the thing that made me successful at design. The thing that made me successful was business practices, understanding how to market my stuff, understanding how to use platforms and how to get licensing deals. And so um, I kind of like put all of that into a, a program and um, started doing that. And I will tell you, you know, in my career as a designer, most definitely the thing that's motivating me just sheer creativity, like doing what I want to do, loving it, loving the process, designing new things, like the excitement of like that temporary satisfaction of having like a product made, which is incredible. I love it so much. Now, um, as CEO of a program, it's had to shift a little. I don't get to design my own products every day like I used to. Um, and instead, a lot of the motivation comes from the members when I see them winning, when I see them making money, when they're like, this has completely changed my life. I'm like, okay, I was, I was on the right path. Once in a while I question it because I'm like, man, I, I wish I was designing fabric right now. But for the most part, it's been so much more um, motivating to watch them win because I'm like, oh, this knowledge is transferable. Like people can do exactly what I did and make money. So you kind of went from, you know, being your own, um, you know, designing your own stuff to being more like a teacher or like, you know, if you think about a music producer, we we don't write our own song or writing songs for other people to show how to how to get out there and, and hit, you know, hit their mark. But it's more about lifting other boats. Or, it's or so true. 
Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's way more exciting than I thought it was going to be, if I'm going to be honest. Like, you know, I knew I could help a few people. I was like, okay, if you just do these things I'm telling you to do, like you can make money. Okay. And then a year or two into it, like people really started making money and like a lot of money. And I was just like, oh, snap, this really works. Like, you know, because, you know, when you first start something, you're not sure especially like for you, I mean, like you come from the music world, you know, you put a song out and you're like, yeah, I don't know how well it's going to do, but you start putting more songs out and you kind of start seeing, oh, like this has an audience, this has a demographic. Same with design. It takes a little bit of time of producing design work to find the right audience to hit it. Yeah. It's like, I don't know. It's like the creative process. There's some level of vulnerability when you first start, right? Because you're it's not scary. sure. Yeah, you're not sure if you should present. And then when you're an artist, a lot of times if you're doing something that really is is not is breaking the mold, the initial um feedback might be just like, well, I I never seen that before. I don't know if that's gonna work, rather than <clears throat> tweaking something that really already works. Yeah. So it's a lot true. of times if you're on the kind of bleeding edge, you get hit with a lot of criticism. It's like, why are you doing that? You know, why are you presenting that? That's not the standard. For me, like in jazz, you know, Miles Davis went from bebop to fusion, you know, and then people say, well, what's that? Because bebop is the standard. Fusion's not, you know, that that's not the standard. So why are you doing that? So and don't, don't you think there's some vulnerability in that? Because like, but when you do that, then you do have to deal with all the criticism, people who don't like it. But then there's also the wins in that, right? Like the people who are like, that's amazing. That's cool. But so hard because that negative feedback really it strikes you as an individual because people don't pay attention to the fact that you're really a regular human being. Well, it, 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 it affects you because I think a lot of people, well, you have to kind of build a little bit of an armor. Like when you start to work in a creative way <clears throat> and people say they hate it, it's like a, a little, you know, you take it personal. And then we learn to kind of separate because I do like my day job is I'm a designer, a software designer. So like, you know, when I'm doing that, like, I don't own the code. The company owns the code. But if somebody goes and says, you know, something I did 10 years ago, that's thing, you know, well, that was the that was what was 10 years ago. I don't own, I mean, the technology shifts so much. It's like, you can say you hate it now, but you didn't understand that's where we were. But then people take it personal. So I've run into situations where you get people like, they they they, they think it's their baby. So when they really don't own it because the company owns it, right? So. Yeah. So a lot of times you have to kind of get beyond it and say, well, you know, are you going to take everything personal and then get really frustrated or kind of learn, have lessons learned and get better? Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. And, you know, it's one of the things we do in design school, right? One of the things is building that armor or building a little bit of a wall so that you're separate from your design work. Because if you think everything is your baby, then it's going to hurt all the time, right? Because nothing's going to be perfect. Nothing's going to feel, I mean, I have children, you have a child, like they're not perfect, right? So like, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's just not going to be perfect. And so like, if you stop thinking of every piece of your work being your baby, and instead it's work and it's an extension of me, but it's not really a part of my being, then it stops being as personal. But I think it's part of it is like, you talked about the passion. Like you, you created a business from your passion. So you're kind of emotionally invested. So you, you have to kind of be aware and situational awareness of how much of that passion is going to be affected by, you know, feedback. 
It's true. I think there is, it's an interesting thing because I think there are business owners who create businesses because they're great business owners. And then I think there's quite a few of us who are practitioners who created businesses because we were just so darn good at the thing that we did. Right. And that's what happened to me. It, it really it stemmed from the thing that I did so well we went about teaching other people to do. And that's why it's believable and it's authentic because I'm teaching from actual experience. Yeah. Um, and so that makes it really nice. The, the opposite side of it though, is that I didn't come into it going, I'm going to be the CEO of a company. In fact, a couple of years ago when I really took on that role and I started having a bigger team and I was working with people, I realized like, oh my gosh, like, I don't know if I own this name CEO. I was a creative director of a scrapbooking company for a long time. I, I took the name president with our company, Mini Lou, when I ran that. And that was um, a coloring book and paper doll company. And we, we did deals with like Nordstrom and, um, you know, 500 independent stores, lots of amazing museums. And it's so crazy because then I, you know, I got into this role at, for Design Suite as CEO. And um, it took me a little while to just really sit in it, like to be like, mm -hmm. okay, this, this is the role I'm taking right now. And I need to stop just telling everyone I'm a designer. Like I'm actually the CEO of a company, but I just, it really, I, it struggled. It was a struggle. So this practitioner to like business owner is a very interesting thing. I think sometimes like you, <clears throat> when you kind of fall into it or you, you didn't expect it. There's some people, they say, right out of business school, I want to be a CEO. They, yes. they, they, they're directed to do that. And then they find it really hard. And, and then what you find is lot there's a lot of situations where some people like entrepreneurs or artists or designers, they, they kind of go on a path and then it makes sense to actually be the, be the CEO, mm -hmm. to become the CFO. And it may have not been their plan. And then the people who plan it are like, how did that happen? Because I've got this business plan and I'm the MBA and I, I have all these things and I didn't hit it. And this person that wasn't even planning on it hit it. But it's like, you know, this opportunity knocks and you pick it up. And sometimes it's really aligned. Yeah. And uh, I think sometimes like the alignment happens and it's not, you know, what people would have expected, right? They say, oh, that, that designer became the executive. You know, the recording engineer becomes the CEO of the record company. You know, yeah. they're an engineer. Like, why did they think they get to be that? But they got to be that because there was something they knew that was valuable in that role. And it makes sense for them to be in that role. You know? Yeah. It's just, it's been a very interesting thing. You know, I always tell everyone when I'm done with this, I still always be a designer, right? Like that's where my passion lies. I love being a designer that if you're seeing the, sh uh, the show that we're doing right now, you can see there, the, my last fabric line is behind me. Um, I'm pretty well known as a die cut designer for silhouette and did some stuff with Michaels and, I just love making and building things. But I also think that's where the authenticity comes through because like, I love it so much. It's really easy to hand that over to my designers who I work with because they're all like, I mean, seeing me make stuff and being excited about it. And they're super excited too. They're like, I can't wait to make stuff, you know? Yeah. It's like, like it's a, there's an example, like in the automotive industry, there was like this trend of bringing in people that weren't engineers from other industries. Like somebody comes in from retail, right? And has nothing to do with engineering at all. And they come in, they take over like an auto company. And yeah, maybe they can sell widgets, they're good at that. But a lot of times 
the tradition was like, you know, the engineer becomes the CEO because the engineer kind of knows the design of the cars, right? And kind of can get excited with the new designs rather than maybe cutting the cost on the designs, but actually getting excited about certain things. And I think sometimes having that, that, that passion about what you do and the connection to what you do, it makes sense for you to be a leader because then you can communicate in a way where it's not just like, Oh, this, this skill is transferable from this other industry. And maybe it can be, but I think there's like having that direct connection, I think is valuable. Yeah. I've, I've really loved it once I kind of settled into it. And it's so funny because it's the exact same things I have to teach my designers. So I get a lot of crafters and surface pattern designers, people who are like crafting, they make stuff, but they don't encompass the role of designer. Like even though they're designing, they're working in Adobe Illustrator, they're working in Procreate, they're making stuff and they're selling it. They refuse to tell people they're a designer. And so it's so funny because when I ran into that, cause they're kind of having identity issues, um, we started talking really a lot about that. And um, can I tell a story really quick about something that happened with one of my designers? So I, I was six months into the program and I had a designer who came to me and she was like, Karina, I just, I just, I'm not a designer. And I said, okay, well, let's, let's talk about this for a little bit. Are you a quilter? And I knew for a fact she would say yes to this because she sews. And she was like, well, yeah. And I was like, well, but like, how do you know you're a quilter? And she said, well, I sew every day. I'm quilting every day. I'm an ambassador for Bernina. I do all this stuff. And I was like, okay, so you know, you're a quilter because you sew every day. She said, yeah. And I said, okay, do you know you are a parent? Like, do you feel like you're a parent? And she was like, well, yeah. And I happened to know she had six, she has six children. And I was like, well, why do you know that? And she was like, well, cause I parent every day. I'm a mom every day. I have kids around me every day. And I was like, oh, interesting. I was like, do you design every day? And she was like, mm. I was like, is that a no? And she was like, yeah. And I said, the best indicator of identity is the activities we do, do every day. Yeah. And so that, I mean, I think that hit hard. This is a story I tell in my design boot camps all the time. And the number one thing that I tell a designer is that we, if you don't feel like a designer, simply design every single day. The more you design, the more you will embrace that identity. If you don't want the word designer, if you want artists, do what an artist would do. If you want creative, just do creative stuff every day. You will embrace it. And then the more you can use that language when you go out to a party or you meet with friends, you know, if I go to a new party and I hang out with people, I still, I struggle with this, but now I say, oh, I'm the CEO or I'm the founder of, of design, of a design program. But I used to always say, designer. oh, I'm a fabric and craft designer. And that's what I tell people to all my designers to say. I was like, say that because sometimes they won't say that. They'll say, oh, I'm a stay-at-home mom. And I'm like, but you freaking make money as a designer. And they're like, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> say, I'm a design, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a paper designer. And the reason you have to do that, there's two reasons. One is it instills it in us when we say it out loud, right? And then the second reason is actually far more important, but people don't realize it. Most of the jobs that get handed around in the design industry is all word of mouth. And it's by simply saying, I am a designer, that the person oh. you're talking to probably has a sister, a brother, a CEO they know that needs a designer for something. This is how mm -hmm. all the jobs Connection. in our 
Yeah. All those networking connections, that is how they all happen. We, I can tell you, we have multiple designers who have made a lot of money in our program by simply learning this one little trick of telling people they're a designer. What's interesting is like when I work with life coaches and therapists, what they find a lot of creative people have a problem with is like imposter syndrome. They have a lot of problems with limiting beliefs. So they could, you know, they, all their life they've been an artist but then they deny it. So then when they're at that party, they won't say it. Like you said, if they don't say it, then they won't get the opportunity. It's kind of like this idea of the law of attraction, right? So if you let people know you're a creative, you're going to get pulled into the creative sphere and sphere, and you're going to get in that environment and you're probably going to get opportunities. But if you deny what you are, then nobody's going to know what you are because you're hiding. You know, and then, and then so true. Like, it's not going to happen. <laughs> it's like an endless cycle. And I think that law of attraction is actually a really good way to put it because it's like what you put out in the universe does come back to you, however you think of it. Um, but it's also our words and the way we behave, right? When we send out positive things, a lot of positive things come back to us. When we send out what we are and what we think we are, guess what? it like starts to instill in us. It's not fakery. It's just simply instilling to us what we've already known we were. Well, I think it's authenticity because I think when you're willing to be vulnerable and then put work out and then actually show the work is uniquely yours and that you have a talent, you're willing to, to, to share it, that sharing breeds opportunity. You know, it's like the idea, like, like podcasting, like the day you do your podcast, the first episode, you might make mistakes. You might not be the best in the world. But as you do it more, as you show up, then suddenly you get opportunities. Like people see your show, then other people recommend your show, and then you get known as a podcaster. So then people come to you and you're constantly doing shows and you're getting booking with no problem because you're identifying yourself. What are you? A podcaster. So I should be able to podcast. So I should be able to get guests. It's like the same idea. They, it's the law of attraction that your guests come to you. Yeah. The, the, the opportunities come to you because you're putting yourself out there. I and really so liked how optimistic you were there, though, with like your first podcast will make a few mistakes. I'm like, I, I think we just hit <laughs> 400 on our podcast. And I was just like, and I still make mistakes. And you know what I've decided is people like it. I think people don't mind. Maybe those of you guys listening here, you're going to hear me say, um, and cough or whatever. <laughs> and at the end of the day, it's because we're regular human beings and we just happen to be talking on a platform, right? But we're real regular people just having a chat here. And um, I still make so many mistakes on my YouTube channel, on my podcast channel, on my <laughs> stories. I just make a lot of mistakes and I've just decided you know what, if people don't like it, then they're looking for a movie star or someone super polished. Well, that's the thing is I try to explain to people, you know, the, re the some of the reasons why I do live podcasting, where there's a lot of people that feel that you should do very polished, highly edited with music behind it and all kinds of graphics and applause coming in, all these things they are highly produced, right? And I felt like, okay, I tried it. I said, well, that's not me because it didn't feel right. It didn't feel comfortable. And then what I found is like, you know, I'm like a, like a like an improvisational musician. And I said, well, that's my talent. So I figured, why don't I bring that to podcast? And the idea, like, I don't have to edit the ums out. I don't have to make it exactly perfect because like it's in the present moment kind of flow state situation. 
And I think people appreciate that compared to like an infomercial or something that's like, you know, done with actors. They're trying to act like they're not actors, right? So if, when you're dealing with actual real people, like their real lives and you're telling that human story, there's something about that that is a lot of people get drawn into it because of the honesty, because of the authenticity and the vulnerability and the stories are unique. And so that in, in itself to me is the, the reason why I do it because I, I like that not knowing what it's going to be. I am so impressed that. that you do <laughs> this. You did this live with like music. That freaks me out. But I mean, you're probably, you're an amazing musician, I'm assuming, or you wouldn't do that. I don't mind doing it speaking live. I don't know if I would love designing live for people to see. That might kind of freak me out, but oh, that's <laughs> interesting. Yeah, it's, it is. It's very interesting. I wouldn't mind putting together a craft. Like today I was, this is for a summit I'm doing. This is a pop-up card. And so I crafted oh, wow. it and we had to have multiple videos, you know, from above and to the side, above, but doing? I wouldn't mind right. putting this together live, but designing live, you know, there's like a process for design. And maybe that's the case too, with composing music to some degree where I have like my own process of going through kind of figuring yeah. what something's going to be until I hit that thing. I like, I, I feel like I don't want anyone to see that. That's a little, yeah. that's an interesting thing I hadn't noticed about myself, but yeah. That's interesting because there are people that like to film that. I mean, they're filmmakers that will go and try to get a band while they're writing the album. Mm -hmm. And then they get, they sometimes they get a lot of pushback because there's like that secret sauce thing where, you know, they don't want to show how, how that happens. They want to show there's like some mystery, some magic. And other people will say, well, you know, I want to kind of capture that. And so there's, there's like kind of dichotomy between like the filmmaker and the artist is like, I don't, I want to try to capture you at your moment of creation. And we're like, I don't know mm -hmm. if I want you to do that. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't mind someone capturing it for me. It's the, um, feeling like I'm on camera and versus me just kind of being in my space. Cause I will tell you when my best design work happens, when I'm in my pajamas with my hair in a bun with no makeup <laughs> on, probably eating a slice of pizza, like just totally a mess. And yeah. I don't mind people seeing the mess necessarily because I actually think that's actually a very honest way to be. Mm -hmm. But like sometimes like it takes me a while to hit my stride in a design. Like if I'm not doing what I call production design work where I'm doing like high volume, like I just designed a new line for my my company, Riley. My, that's who I designed for Riley Blake. Um, I did it over a weekend and I did it over a 24 hour period. And when I did it, like it was really messy. Like, I think if someone saw it, they'd be like, I do not understand what she's doing. Cause I'd be like, <laughs> I draw one thing, I go throw it to the side, I go draw something else, I throw it to the yeah. side, draw something else, throw it to the side. And then I'd have to walk away from it for a little while and then come back to it and be like, okay, I think this piece works and this piece works and this piece works, but I don't know if all of them work and then something else gets thrown out. So it's such a messy process to me. Yeah. And you know, teaching ends up actually being a very clean chronological process. And so it's a very interesting dichotomy in what I do and what I try to teach people to do, but also telling them like, Oh, this is kind of messy. Like the way you get yeah. there is a little bit yeah. messy. Well, sometimes it's not linear. And the problem is like the problem with a lot of teaching methods is it wants to be sequential. Mm -hmm. Why I find that over time as an artist, a lot of things are not sequential. Yes. A lot of things are kind of haphazard. They're, they are kind of, you know, there was a famous thing where um, documentary we were talking to Frank Zappa 
And Fang Zappa was like this, um, somebody who doc, he was doing the documentary on him showed what he does. He would, he would do live shows. He do tape shows. He do all these shows. He go to his house and he have all the tapes all over the floor in his, in his living room. And he'd be bouncing around between the different ones, taking live tapes and mixing them with live things, taking, you know, doing the live performance with the tape and just doing a lot of hodgepodge kind of in the moment. And he and basically he was honest and said, this is where my best work comes when I'm not thinking like linear, I'm kind of all over the place. Mm. And, and a lot of times if you teach people, they want to know that sequential and it's, a lot of times it's not. It and isn't. so. Yeah, so it's kind of hard because like once once you learn some basics, yeah, the basics can be taught sequentially. But yes. when you start going into the practice, it kind of jumps. The timeline can jump all over the place. Yeah, I do think that I was just thinking about my time teaching at the University of Minnesota because, you know, for designers in particular, and I don't know if they do this for musicians as well, but you have like your base core foundational classes, right? And then you have your upper class stuff, like your the stuff you're doing your junior year. Um, and it's taking all the information you had from your foundational to like be able to put it into these junior uh, classes. Then you have like a senior capstone project where you've got like portfolio and all of that. <clears throat> and I was just thinking about, so we do that a little bit of that in our program. There are 17 courses, like, and we're right now in the middle of building them out to semester long. So they're pretty intensive and crazy, but we actually give everyone a different roadmap based on who they are. So they can take, maybe they're taking Illustrator for Beginners, Illustrator Academy and Fabric Design Academy. Whereas someone over here might be starting at Silhouette Designer Masterclass, Illustrator Workarounds and... Mm -hmm. You know, uh, yeah. So like everyone's got a different road plan, but we we make sure that no one's actually on the same road plan. There's very few people who are on the same road plan because based on what you want to create there, it isn't linear. It's not as I wish it were actually a little linear. It would sure make it easier to teach. Right. But that's why we have 17 <laughs> courses, because it's like you're going this roadmap. This person's going this roadmap and you're going to have yeah. some stops along the way to try to make it happen. Yeah, a lot of times there's like there's like this kind of thing I've learned as an artist where you talk about your, the walk away or the point where like I need silence before I start anything. Mm -hmm. I need to kind of not have a, a lot of noise. I need to kind of be kind of with no inputs coming in, just some time to just be there with no music going on, no no getting pinged, nobody sending me anything, just kind of quiet. Now, whether I do that by walking in the woods or meditating or something – just to kind of clear my head, then I'll get into it. And sometimes in the middle of something, I'll need to kind of break away because I'm too deep into it. And mm -hmm. so I think that as some people might want to just keep on, you know, diminishing returns. Like if you keep on working eight hours on the same thing and then yeah. it's, it's getting frustrating. So sometimes that's like the kind of trigger that like, maybe you need to walk away. <laughs> you need yeah. to get a space. For big projects for sure. I think, you know, it's so funny because we teach our designers not to do big projects at the beginning. Like very, there are very few projects that should take more than an hour. Most should take by the time they're done with us, like after the year, we expect things that took them one hour to do should take them 15, maybe 10 minutes to do. Cause the goal is to become fast. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and to get really good at the craft. And so big projects, I know what you're talking about because that's like a whole collection, right. For me, I, what would that be for you? Like a full score, possibly? Like, a full, like a full album versus a song. Yes. Like, you know, depending on a song can take a year if you're mm -hmm. that crazy about it. Right. Like 
you could take six months on one song. Yeah. But some artists could be like, they could take six months to do the whole record. It's kind of who the artist is. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, the big project, it's, it's, a, it's a, like the album or the EP versus a song or just a jingle. Mm -hmm. I'm doing a 30 second ad for a license versus a five minute song versus a 30 minute score for a video game. Mm -hmm. There's different levels of that project. Like, mm -hmm. like the, the score in the film or the video game, that's a big project. Yeah. Well, so I'm super curious now, like, do you work well under a deadline? Well, I think some artists don't. I mean, I, I can, I, I, I write all the time. And so for me, writing a song is not hard. Some artists are make it kind of a tortured thing where it can take a very long time mm. for them to do like very little output. So it takes like four years to get a record where I could do probably like five records in one year. So, mm -hmm. so it just depends on if you're comfortable creating work and, you know, and the quality still is there, no matter what the time is, it's like, it's just, to me, it's like a passion thing. If you're passionate about just creating art, it just happens where like, you don't, you know, I, I, I it's a different mindset. I don't have a problem with the deadlines because I can hit them. Yeah. Interesting. Um, as you talk to people and other creatives, do you find that that is something people are good at in the creative space or is it something that people struggle with? I'm just curious. Well, I think like if you're a studio musician, you got to hit deadlines. Like, so if you're a certain type of musician, like you're working on projects and you have set deadlines, mm -hmm. if you're more of an artist that like doesn't have that time deadline, <clears throat> then you can be very indulgent. So I've run into a lot of artists that are very indulgent about how long they work on something because they really don't have deadlines because yeah. they're just working on their own thing. This is so the same thing in design. It's exactly the same thing. And I, it's especially designers who are trying to build their own businesses, who, who that's who we mostly work with because they don't have forced deadlines. They tend, I love the word indulgent. That is exactly what it is where they kind of feel like they can like push a project out as long as they want. When the truth is the faster and quicker you can end projects, the quicker your deadlines are. Like if you can have daily deadlines, you are far more likely to succeed and make a lot of money as a designer. I feel like that's the thing I'd love to emphasize to all of you as creatives. Like it, the best thing you can do for yourself is mandatory deadlines for yourself. It's like, you know, that's why people went to Barry Gordy because Barry mm -hmm. Gordy had a hit shop. He had training. He trained the guys how to present themselves, how to write the songs, how to hit, you know, to go and take a song and run it through four different bands. Four mm -hmm. different ways, four different groups, you know, perfect it, put it out, keep on putting out records, like having a deadline, kind of like a hit hit machine. Yeah. And so when, when you have that kind of structure where you are wanting to put singles out every week, you want to hit the radio every week with your artist to let people know you're there. So And that works. You have that kind of, yeah, when you have that kind of machine – any people like, well, like, how could that work? You're going to burn out, you know, and sometimes it does, but, but the, the idea that the work ethic of it does get you into the point where like the musicians were like, just like on top of it, they were, they're so well practiced. They're not, they didn't have all this downtime. They really got good. They yeah. really became like that is exactly the same in the design industry. It's the same way. Actually, I think across all creative fields, as I talk to other creatives, 
it's actually the more you produce, the more creative you get because you've stretched yourself, right? Because the more you produce, the higher your volume, the more you can create, the more interesting your stuff becomes, right? Because you're pushing harder and harder and harder. I actually think the opposite happens. I think people who say, well, maybe you're going to burn out. I think those people haven't really dug into the true creative process because a creative only wants to grow, not limit. Yeah. yeah what usually happens, like you might burn out what you did before, right? Yes. That you might get tired of doing the same baseline. And so you'll evolve it because you got bored. And so what it tends to do is it leads to innovation. Like people, like you keep on doing the same hi-hat. Well, you're not going to want to keep on doing that because it's done 10 different songs. So you start changing it. You start getting better. You start creating new variations. And then that's the evolution. So you're, what happens is you start to get evolutionary, you know, in, in increases in your capability. And so you see this with bands, like from the first Beatle album to like Sgt. Pepper, Abbey Road. It's like there's a massive progression in terms of what they were able to do from being like a boy band to being this art band. Like, how did that happen? Because they were doing the work. <laughs> yeah. It's totally volume and time, which is something actually, we haven't talked about it yet, but my new book that's coming out, well, just barely came out. It's called Make Art That Sells. Um, we just do a formula in it because we want it to be super practical for people. But two of the components are volume and time. And all like people underestimate, highly underestimate as a creative, how much volume you have to put out in order to win, to make money, to do anything, right? <laughs> it's like the number of podcast episodes, the number of YouTube videos, the number of Instagram posts, the number of designs, the number of songs you have to put out far greater than you think it has to be in order to produce good stuff. And then secondly, it takes time to do that. So like I'll run into designers who will be like, well, I came out with a hundred designs in three months. I'm like, well, just keep doing that. And they're like, why? And I'm like, because you haven't put enough time in. Like there isn't <laughs> enough time. There might be the volume there, but I'm like, you need that volume further up. So do that now for three more months and then three more months after that. Okay, now we're at a year and we have 400 designs. Now we're talking. Now, where do we go from here? And so most designers and I think most creatives highly underestimate the amount of effort, time, and volume something takes to really make it. Well, I think it's kind of like if you think about the athlete example, like the 10,000 hours to get the three-point shot. You kind of have to get that to get the muscle memory so you hit that all the time. And the yeah. same thing with a musician, you know, to get the muscle memory so you go on stage and you know all those songs. It's the, it's the practice, the practice that you're doing. And it's also – what people don't understand for every, every musician has a big catalog of stuff you've never heard. Mm. It's the, it's all those demos. You know, you have like hundreds, if not thousands of demos before anybody ever even knows that you're big because that's the process you did to get to where you are. Now, not everybody sees it because it's messy, but that's, that's the work you have to do. Like the 400 designs, you know, you get the hundred demos, the thousand demos of, of, of what you did to get where you are. It's not usually zero to a hundred. It's not overnight. It's usually a lot of work. Man, wouldn't it be nice though, if it were zero to a hundred, I think all <laughs> of us would be winning right now. <laughs> yeah. It's just, I, I think people underestimate the level of work, you know, cause they think, well, I'll put like one album out. It's like, you might actually have put out five albums with the material to get to that one album. Yeah. It's so true. But, 
they get to that one single, you might have 50 songs before you actually got to the song that's the single. And that's just the nature of the way that the way things work. Yeah. Um, I think that's really hard for creatives to hear because I think we want to feel like everything is like spontaneous and like, I know for designers anyway, we kind of want everything to be like rainbows and unicorns and like butterflies are flying all around us. And it's like just spontaneous creativity. Sometimes we get a little bit like that, um, but it just really isn't, is it? Like most of the time it's scheduled time on my calendar to sit down, open up my computer, you know, open up Illustrator on my list today. It's design a shadow box card. I'm going to design a shadow box card, you know, and it's just very kind of clear cut. It's not some magical thing. A lot of it is just muscle memory, like the thing that I do every day. And so it just feels easy and effortless over time. Yeah, it's really that you got to show up because I think the mistake that some creators do is like they think like they put the time in and then they take tons of time away from it and then they lose their capability. So like, like a lot of times, like you kind of got to maintain that level of practice, you know, and, and it's like, well, you, you do because you lose it. Like, you know, a lot of artists is like, if they get, take a lot of time off, they lose their chops and then they got to build it back up. That yeah. So they, if you can, if you're constant, if you can do something sustainably and incrementally where you kind of doing it on a regular basis and you take, don't take these very long, like two year break and you don't do anything, which I guess yeah. some people, that's how they want to operate. But like, I find that you kind of, kind of mess yourself up doing that. <laughs> I think you start over. It's like starting over again. It's kind of like, a, I hate to say it like a diet, but like you screw up so bad. You're like at square one again. Um, we were just discussing this in my program because some, some of my members had a family loss, which is a very big deal. And you do need to take some time off to grieve. She's dealing with all the affairs that, you know, all the like death stuff. I mean, there's a lot of things involved. And I said, like, listen, here's the deal. This is what I want you to do. I was like, you need to walk away from design a little bit. Like you, you have to take care of this stuff. This is, it's going to be hard and you're grieving and it's tough. But I said, like, just do whatever the minimum is for you to keep going. Because most people don't realize just even being able to do the minimum, even through hard things will keep you still in a state of creativity. It will still continue to up level you because People don't realize if you're not taking a couple of steps forwards, you're actually taking a couple of steps back and you just don't realize it. So it's it. like, yeah. So it's kind of like you just want to be in maintenance stage, which means like if you can just do the minimum, which might mean only opening up the programs uh, like twice a week. It might mean only making one product that week. It might mean designing one little thing that week. That's that's still progress because that still keeps you going. It's the moment you walk away from it. I would say even for a month that it gets really hard to jump back in again. Yeah. Cause then you get into that paralysis of like getting back in and it's kind of like trying to learn the horse again, you know, and you lose, you lose the skill set, and you know, it's, it's a lot of hard work and it's like, why would you do that? And we, we got a lot of examples of, you know, musicians that take big long time to off and then they come back and then they're like, well, they're not where they were in 74. <laughs> 76, yeah, totally. they, don't, they don't, they don't, they're not carrying themselves the way it is because they lost part of it, you know? And it's like, you can see it and it's like, okay, but you gotta yeah. like, okay, well, that's where you are now. So like, well, I, I think you have to know yourself <laughs> and you have to know human nature. I was just thinking, so 
every year or so I go off sugar and flour for like two or three months. Okay. This is like this thing I do. It's so stupid because I do it. It feels really hard. Then I feel really great for like three months. And then I accidentally, something happens, a celebration, a something. And I start having a little sugar again. And the next time it's time for me to get off sugar and flour again, it feels really hard. Like I'm like, oh, I don't want to do it, but I know I should do it. I'll feel so much better. I'll get my energy back. And I, I do think like you have to know yourself because willpower I don't think is an infinite thing. I think it's finite. You know, yeah. um, there's a great book by um, uh, Daniel Pink called When, and he says your willpower by the end of the day, it's almost gone. Like he basically <laughs> says you have a lot of it when you start your day. But think about especially early birds, people who can get a lot done. Like I, I can get a lot done between 6 a.m. and noon. Like, mm. man, like yeah, I can bird. like kill it. I can... I can do like 10 days worth of design work during that time. The moment noon hits, and really for me, it's like one o'clock in the afternoon. Starts it's just like, off. yeah, you got to know yourself. Like if you know you're an early bird and all your stuff happens then, then if you if you set yourself up for failure by putting yourself in, like somehow you're going to do something at three o'clock. Like, well, do you ever do that anything at three o'clock? Probably not. So it's like, like, you don't want to probably do that. <laughs> I know. I like, we actually moved a lot of our meetings in my company around to that because I could do meetings. Like I could like meet with people, get our stuff done, know what was going to happen the next day. If I could do my, um, my deep work is what I call it in the mornings. And so we moved and actually we did a couple of different crazy things. Um, at the beginning of this year, well, we had annual meeting with my leadership team. And one of the big things I said to them is how can we schedule no meetings on Wednesdays and Thursdays? I was like, can we have, so Tuesdays are our main design day. Like we meet with members that day. We have all kinds of things going on that day. Monday is like a lot of team meetings, trying to get everything sorted. And then Friday, it's like all the like leadership meetings, follow-up meetings. A lot of my podcasts happen on Friday. Mm -hmm. And um, I know we're doing this on a Wednesday, but notice it's in the afternoon. I don't know what time it is for you, but it's the afternoon for me. It's four o'clock. I'm like, I can do a podcast at four o'clock. That's not my, <laughs> for me, it's not my deep work. My deep work is, designing, writing, copy, doing creative work. Like I want that in the morning where I'm really, really like gung ho for it. And so we did this and I can't tell you just even having a full, more of a fuller day that where all the creative stuff can happen in a single day. I accomplish so much more. Like it's insane how much more I can accomplish by just simply pulling everything like I'm there's not allowed to be anything aft until noon on Wednesdays on Thursdays for sure for me it's been That's interesting. Like, yeah well I think like in, in design work like a lot of times we get pulled into a lot of management meetings yes and then we kind of kind of push back it's like if you want us to actually build the program you got to give us time to build the program yeah if you keep on putting this in for like four hour meetings every day how are we going to build the program so they yeah. got to give us some part of the week where we're all about design. And then there's other days you can, you can stack that with meetings, but give us like a full spread of time so we can actually do the work, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's, it was like, you know, because a lot of times I've like, the managers, you know, I want to put them down, but it's like, they don't do the work. Yeah. Right. So, so if they don't understand that I need to have a clear space to do the design, Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's a, a computer program or writing a song, whatever, you need to kind of space to be able to do it. 
Well, and, and longer blocks of time. That's the other thing that was so beautiful about this Wednesday, Thursday thing that I implemented in my company. So some, some of the people meet like, so Lisa, who's our design suite lead and Abby, who is our, uh, she's our uh, design suite assistant. The two of them work a lot together. So they will schedule working meetings together on Wednesdays and Thursdays, but the two of them are literally working together. Yeah, yeah. Like they're yeah, on the computers. Application development. So yeah, they're just sitting there working together. That is really different than having a meeting that's more managerial, like what's going on with this? What's going on with this? How are we doing this? And so those meetings are not allowed to happen except for on Mondays and Fridays. Tuesdays is Design Suites program day. So we have a lot of program stuff going on where we're meeting with members and all of that. And I, I'm going to say like even even. Uh, we moved like we had our team meeting used to be really early in the morning. We moved it back to 10 a.m. So I could just spend the first three hours of my week sitting down and like really like thinking about like what needs to happen for the week and doing mm-hmm. any creative CEO work that I need to do, which is totally different than design work. Like creative yeah. CEO work like bends my brain in a way that my design work doesn't. And so I think that's really important. And I don't think we give ourselves enough space to do that. And I mean, truly do it because, you know, people put space on the calendar and they don't do anything with that stuff. Like that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about like you literally sit down and you're like for three hours doing the creative work. Well, I think sometimes some people feel like they got to fill the calendar to show that they're, they actually have an activity when they don't understand like the activity is actually the production that, that it needs to happen. And if you overfill with too much micromanaging meetings that aren't productive, they're more like metric meetings rather than like, well, where are you? Like, okay, we keep on asking me where I am. You're not giving me time to actually get where I need to be. Totally. It's so true. Yeah. So it's like once you, like, I think it's a level of trust. Like if you've got people that can do work, trust them to do the work and then ask them, where they are if you give give them a reasonable amount of time to do it. But if you keep on interrupting them, yes, interrupting that flow, like the flow state doesn't work well if you're getting interrupted every 10 minutes. Yeah. You know, it's like, how, how are you going to do that? <laughs> yeah, it's true. Do you work virtually or in an office for your day job? My day job is I'm totally virtual. Mm-hmm. I deal with teams all over the place, people in Canada, people in different parts of the world. And uh, it, with programming, it's, it's highly possible. Like what we do is all algorithms and it's, you know, it's designed as interfaces and UIs and stuff, but it's like everything we do, we do these electronic whiteboards in, in, in online meetings and we do JAD sessions where we'll have like 10, five, five or 10 people working on something in real time. Yeah. A programmer actually doing code, a tester, a QA person on a UI person on UI guy does the change does a Java change and then somebody goes in with the, with the back end change. And then they actually watch it flow through with the tester and look at the reports, look at the downs. They get to see the whole thing in real time. So we that's can actually, actually my favorite way to work. Like if I'm, unless I'm working alone on a project where I'm just doing, I actually love that. And it, I love it when it's not training. Cause a lot of what's happening in my company right now is we train someone to do something. So we're kind of doing it with them, but I love it when, so my executive assistant has been with me for, Oh my gosh, almost three years now. She's amazing. 
And like, she and I will get on and the two of us will just be like, okay, I'm like, I'm writing the email. And she'll be like, okay, I'm writing the zaps. And then I'll be like, okay, I think this part's done. She'll be like, okay, I'm moving it over to monday.com. Okay. I'm moving it over to Kajabi. Okay. I'm moving it over to GHL. And so like, then the two of us like get all the software and everything. It, that is a beautiful thing. There is a beautiful flow to that when you can have a team that can do that. Yeah. It's just, there's a lot of synergy that we found. It, it used to be, cause I'm a child of the seventies, you know, I would be in an office. My programmer is like sitting right next to me. My UI guy sitting next to me. The queue, we're in the same row. We're in the same area. And we would just be in there and have a whiteboard in, in, on the aisle and we'd jump on it. But we can do all that virtually now. Yeah. And and the thing is, you know, one guy might be in India. One guy might be in Canada. One might be in the U.S. But we're all doing the same thing we used to do when we were in that queue. We're in, the, in, in an aisle kind of mm -hmm. talking over the desk. And we find that we actually work more, that like, we work longer hours than we did in the office. <laughs> I think that I think my team would tell you the exact same thing because we have a full virtual team as well. And everybody is everywhere. We have someone in Spain, several in the Philippines, like, I mean, all over the United States. And I, I would say, because we don't tell anyone what time to work, like everyone can work whenever they want. So if we have like night owls who like to work, that's great. We have morning people, they work. Um, <coughs> but I do. I do think, I think people work harder and faster at home, like, because we're kind of like, okay, we're just getting it done. And, um, I also think, and I don't know how big your the company you work for is, but we're kind of a smaller team. There's only, um, we have 14 people on the team. And, and so because we're a smaller team, everything we do matters, right? Like every single thing everybody does really contributes to the overall. It's very stressful to me as the CEO. Cause I'm kind of like, Oh, did we drop any of the balls? Right. Cause like all the little things going on, but I also think it's a really beautiful thing because everybody knows they're important. Like everybody knows that the piece they play is really important. It's just interesting. Yeah. My team is in a big, bigger company, but it's like, we figured out, you know, we were doing some of this stuff before COVID that, that, that we can be more efficient um, because, you know, we get pinged. And I can jump on something like right after this, if somebody pings me, I could jump on something and it has something like right now, like later. And, and it's like, you used to have to like, Oh, I got to fly there. I got to drive there. I got to get an Uber. It's like all that is gone. So if I need to check something, I can check it like right now. Yeah. So that, that, that like those type of efficiency, some people might be, Oh, well, you can't be efficient. Like there's a lot of stuff we can do yep. that's faster and better. And we can immediately like stop a problem. It, like, like right now. <laughs> and so yeah. I think it's, um, it's just, a, it's a modern technology, you know, it's like where we are today with our tech, uh, we're just able to talk like we're talking now. And yeah. I think it's like a community. It's like a community thing where now the, your, 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 the, the, the teams are so open that like they're international teams. Mm -hmm. They're like cross, you know, coast. Somebody could be in LA, someone could be in New York. You know, somebody I've, I've dealt with people in Japan and Australia in you know, Netherlands. It's like you can deal with people and you get different perspectives. And, and it's really interesting, you know, how how you can learn from the different business models coming from different countries or different perspe cultural perspectives. And to me, that that's always super interesting. Yeah, I actually think it's the thing that's making companies better or I hope it is anyway, because before when you could only pull from your local, that meant you could only pull a certain amount of talent. 
Now, if you are a company that really wants to grow and is very talented, you can pull, you know, like my, my design suite lead is in North Carolina. My, um, my admissions lead, she's in Washington state. Like, I mean, like I wouldn't have found either one yeah. of them. Yeah. You can get the right person for the right job, not based on location. Yeah. Right. It's a and really so, beautiful thing. And that is so cool because it also like builds a community because a lot of times, like, you know, when you're, you get to these, like, you know, people who should be working together now you have less barriers to the right talent being able to do it. It's not like somebody like in Mumbai and somebody, you know, that's in Germany and somebody in Australia and now they can actually do it like without having to wait to get their visa. Yeah. You know, they can actually get on the project and start doing it now. And I'm like, wow, that's so cool to be able to, to, to like be able to access that talent pool. And it is like, it is a learning experience for everybody. Yeah. To learn the accents, learn the culture, learn the lingo. It's just really cool to me to actually have that level of diversity in terms of the thinking. You know, like when you talk to somebody that's like from China or Jap Japan, the Eastern thought versus Western thought. And yeah. I actually lived in Tokyo for two years, and there's like there's a significant difference in 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 kind of way you think about things, mm -hmm. uh, and the way you discuss things, and even the way you read things, because the way the Japanese language is compared to the Western, you know, English language how you interpret what they write is, is a totally different. I learned over time, like it's, it's, it's well, really different. <laughs> it contributes to more than people realize too, because uh, so um, this is going way, way back. So, but when I finished my doctorate, my doctorate was all on short-term memory and like types of things that we remembered under seven seconds. So it was like, a, it was quick, quick fixes. And it's so funny because the hypothesis was that people would remember realistic items that were the right color. Like, so they would remember a red apple better than a blue apple because it's a faster, quicker, like memory jog. Um, guess what we found out? Uh, very little has to do with color and the actual object. Everything in Western culture has to do with placement on the screen. So the thing that everybody remembered the best was whatever was in the left-hand top corner, which <laughs> is the way we read, right? Yeah. And so I would be so curious, like if I had gone on to just do research, if I hadn't started my design business, if we had run those same types of tests on Eastern cultures, if we would have found yeah. something completely different. But yeah, it was so right. interesting because we were running all kinds of tests on like 250 people, like to figure out what was going on with short-term memory. And it was number one. And that's, and that's why, and our, our research even showed it that the best place for your logo is the top left-hand corner of a website. Cause it is oh, the wow. place that everyone will remember. Wow. And we weren't even looking for that information. We were looking for something totally different. Different. You found it out. That, that is really interesting. Cause like, you know, when I was in Japan, what I learned is like, you know, the, the, the characters, like the, the Japanese characters and Chinese, like uh, hiragana, katakana and kanjis or well, the kanjis, you know, they're, they're these, you know, very intricate characters that actually kind of have a history of actually representing things like, you know, for Kawa actually looks like a river, the kanji for Kawa, which is like, you know, a Japanese word for a river, it looks like a river. So a lot of these these languages, like they have aspects to them with Chinese and, and Egyptian languages and 
they have these pictograms, you know, they're part of the characters rather than like letters in an alphabet. And so the meaning that you get from these kanjis is different as soon as you see it compared to like letters. Mm -hmm. And so it, it actually invokes different perspectives. And I'm like, wow, it's just it, that it alone causes like a different level of thinking. When mm -hmm. you look at like the documents and things, it's like, it's just a different perspective. Yeah. And it's clearly learned. So, cause like I'm, so I'm half Chinese, my mom's Chinese and I watch a lot of Korean shows, but I think like a Westerner because I like, she will say something and I'll be like, well, what are you saying, mom? You know, and she's thinking about it a little different than me because she, she's actually from Malaysia. She's ethnically Chinese, but she's from Malaysia. And that's even different than when I went to mainland China, the way they think it's, it's just very fascinating. Yeah, I just love like in terms of like the art of it because my daughter got like a lot of Shinto um, aspects because she went to a Japanese kindergarten and preschool. So her art style is very much like Japanese kind of Shinto culture is like in like you know, seven tailed, nine tailed foxes and all kinds yes. of spirit, spirit animals. The nine tailed fox, always. It's, yeah. It's all over her work, you know, dragons and all kinds of mystical you know, spirit animals, like it's all through her work. Cause that's kind of what she learned as a kid. That's what she saw. She wasn't in an American school. She, she got a Japanese school from the beginning. Yeah. So I her, love that. So it's a totally, and it kind of puts her in a different space as an artist. Cause she has a lot of these Japanese and Chinese like motifs in her art. Yeah. And the way they and, use and it is different than the way we think of art too. And, and the way it's in their culture is different than the way we have animals and stuff like that in our culture. It's just different. And I can't quite explain it, but it is just different. Yeah. It's a different mindset. It's a different cultural mindset, but I think it's just really cool that you're able to take your passion and then apply it as a, as a teacher or mentor and actually lift like other boats, like we've been saying, and and you've, you've got your design course here, and, and then I think I also have your other uh, other um, websites. Yeah. Different between the two different. Just go to KarinaGardner.com. That'll be easier than that one, but it'll take you to the That's same it. place. I do have something that maybe some of your listeners would want for free. If do you want me to just give that to them? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, we have a brand new class, master class that goes with the Make Art That Sells uh, book. I'll totally give it to you guys for free. So all you have to do is go to makeartbook.com. And if you go to makeartbook.com, it's just www.makeartbook.com. If you uh, click on the masterclass, uh, if you put in the code makeart, it will zero out the cost of that class and make it free for you. So if you want to take the masterclass, if you want to get the book, great. It's on Amazon. There's a link for that there as well. But like the masterclass, totally free. And I'm going to talk you through the formula that we use to make art that really sells. And I actually think your daughter should do it. I think it would really help her. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah, I let her know. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome to be able to talk to people. That's one of the things we tell people to, you know, click on the links we provide to get a deeper perspective of who we talk to. You just mentioned another link. And um and maybe you send that through the private channel, add it to the overall. Oh, yeah, here, I'll do that. Yeah, and I can actually put that up before pe before we end tonight. I can just throw that up so people have this other one. So let me grab that and just get it in real time and put it out here. So let me do that as we're talking and then get it out here. 
And you guys are going to figure out. I'm very practical is. as a designer. Yeah, there you go. Makeartbook.com. I'm so practical as a designer. Like, I, I believe in the process, but I also think there are things you can do to make the process easier. And lots of times people are like, feeling stuck and they're not making money. And a lot of it's because they're just missing one little thing. And we do this formula. It's like, are you missing the sales vehicle? Okay, here are the four sales vehicles and this is what you have to do. Are you missing like your special mix to create style, which we is medium theme and product. If you don't have that special mix kind of nailed down, then it's going to be hard to develop style so that people can see who you are as an artist so that you can create brand. So there are lots of little pieces and we show you how to do it. We show you how to put in your own mix to make it even better so that you're like kind of figuring it out. But being a creative doesn't have to be a mystery and making money doesn't have to be a mystery either. So um, hopefully you have a chance to take that course because it's really fun. That's awesome. I think that a lot of the creative people who are, you know, fans and, and guests and people guests on the show will, um, you know, can take, take heart to what you're talking about. And a lot of, you know, people are kind of cross genre. You know, like a lot of musicians, they dabble in art and they might be interested in this and a lot of actors they dabble in art and they might be interested in like trying to refine it. Cause it's all part of the same, like they get into the project of, of their, of what they're doing and they want to have an artistic like uh, expression to get into. So learning how to get to be better at marketing is always better. It's always a good idea as an artist. <laughs> yeah. So and a lot of it really does translate. Like it's, I mean, we've been talking about two different things, music and design but almost all the principles are basically the same. You have to create volume. You have to spend time in it. You have to produce. You have to put effort in. Um, you know, there's like certain things that you have to do on a daily or weekly or monthly basis to ever make any, you know, real progress as that creative type. I, I, I really stand by what you're saying. And I think it's, it makes a lot of sense. And you've been able to do it. So that's why we love to have people on the show. They're authentic. Like you've, you're a CEO, you're, you're actually, you're, you're in business, you're being, you're profitable. You know, this is the kind of, the kind of episode that we like to present to show people like you can do it. And, yeah. it, it, and it's not as much a mystery when you have people like yourself that are willing to kind of give up the secret sauce. <laughs> and so that's a, uh, that's cool. The secret sauce is that it's not very sexy and it's doing it every day. That's what the secret sauce is and just enjoying yourself right in the process. Well, I want to thank you again for being a guest on the Fam Electric Ghost podcast and we appreciate it. And uh, we will be, we were live on Facebook, YouTube and Twitch and we'll be on a bunch of other platforms. We're on all the major platforms where you can view or, or listen to a podcast and that will make that available to your audience through a landing page tomorrow. And I thank you again for being a guest on the show. Have a good, good rest of the evening. Thanks guys. <laughs>